Again, it's a privilege to be here. We're looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to turn there and then we'll end up uh, going to 1 John. I'm ringing just a little bit there, Steve. Thank you. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is, uh, I think, my favorite New Testament chapter as a whole. And a couple of my favorite verses is where we'll start in verse 14 and uh, verse number 15. 2 Corinthians 5. 14 and 15. And I'm going to do something tonight I don't always have the uh, privilege of doing, and that is preaching on the love of Christ. It's not often we get that uh, freedom from the Holy Spirit to preach that. Usually we're preaching on judgment or getting right with God or something like that. So when the Lord gives us liberty, I, I'm glad to preach on the love of Christ. It says in verse 14, if you're there, for the love of Christ constraineth us. Because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for what you've done for us, for this, the great love that you have loved us. Father, we don't deserve your love, and I pray, God, that as I preach, that you'd give me this freedom and liberty. I pray that you'd govern the words that I say and the spirit by which I say it, and then Lord, just uh, use this to be an encouragement and a conviction, if necessary, upon the hearts of Christians. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Now, i got to tell you that I do love my wife. You know, we have a special relationship, as all husbands and wives ought to. I have a good... Uh, I wish my wife were here. I wish she were... And my children were able to be here. We have a... I tell my wife all the time that I love her, and she tells me that she loves me. The object of our love is one another. She and I have a, just a great relationship. I would say, though, that in the whole gamut of things, we don't talk about our love for one another. We talk about each other. I mean, as if we say, the love of Don or the love of Debbie. Uh, we don't speak of it in terms in that nature. Uh, but God's love is so big and so vast that we call it by its own title, the love of Christ. And in the Bible, the Bible describes for us that, that we have love for Christ. Now, please understand what I'm trying to say. In 1 John, the Bible says we love Him because He first loved us. You and I have a natural love for the Lord Jesus Christ, those of us that are saved. We have a love for Christ. We, we love Him. And our love really is a responding love. You see... We love Him, as the Bible says, because He first loved us. And it goes on to say that He gave, because He gave Himself for us, we have a love for Him. Now, we love Him because He first loved us, but why does He love us? That's a mystery we'll never really know the answer to. I mean, as, as, as we live in our, sin, our, our self-centered lives, somehow we tell ourselves that we deserve the love or attention that we get from others or from God Himself. But we do not. Who are we? The Bible tells us Psalms, What is man that thou art mindful of him? And while we as people do not deserve the love of Christ, his love becomes the starting point or the real reason why we love him. We have love for Christ. Our love for God is really a weak form of, uh, our, of, of the love that should flourish. It should grow. Turn with me, if you will, to 1 John chapter 4. I think this will 
help you if you could actually look at it. First John chapter 4, the Bible speaks about the love of God. And I think once you turn there, we can stay in this text. But in verse 19, it says, we love him because he first loved us. But in verse number 17, the Bible says, Herein is our love made perfect. Now, the word perfect means to become complete, to mature. The Bible tells us that the man of God may be perfect or mature, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. And in this sense, our love, which at salvation is, seems uh, fresh and new, and it is. But then it's a small love that ought to not stay that way, but we should grow in that love. Herein is our love made perfect. Herein is our love to continually grow. That we should love God, love Christ more than we ever have. We ought to grow in this kind of love. Uh, Our love should be perfected. And uh, we have the love for Christ. Not only do we have love for Christ, but we are loved by Christ. Look at verse number 10. Herein is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us. And sent His Son to be the propitiation. Now that long word propitiation means payment. Payment. That He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. We are loved by Christ. Now we are loved not in a lovely state. We are loved when we were yet sinners. Romans tells us this. That while we were yet sinners, not while we were lovable or not while we were first loving Christ or God. Not in our, our, our sense that we deserve the love, but while we were against God. Because we don't sin as if sin is something abstract, but we sin and it's sin against that holy God that loves us. And while we were in that state, the Bible tells us in the book of James that if you are In sin, you are enmity against God Himself. And so while we as sinners, shaking our fist at God, not deserving His love, not really expecting His love, defying His person, saying, I don't care about holiness or truth or righteousness. And in that state, God loved us. Now that's some love right there. Galatians tells us that and. Chapter 2, you know that passage says, I am crucified with Christ. The last part of that verse says, talking about God says, who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, this is a fact that we are loved by Christ. But the love of God himself is treated in Scripture as its own entity. It's so enormous that in this particular sermon that I'm going to try to preach and try to get through, We could only but just touch on this vastness and the immensity of the love of God. It is itself its own entity. Look again at verse number 9 of chapter 4. In this was manifested, notice here it says, the love of God. And now you'll notice that as you're reading the Bible and you're reading the scriptures, you'll find that the love of God is its own entity. It is so enormous. It says, the love. Love of God. Look at verse number uh, uh, 16. I'll point this out here about verse 16. And we know, uh, we have known and believed, here it is, the love that God hath to us. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. It is related to the person of God. Okay? God is love. He himself is this kind of entity, this kind of description about him. This is who he is. 
It's not, it's not as though he wears love as an attribute, kind of like we put on our suit coat and we have our suit coats and Christ doesn't put on love as if he carries love with him. The Bible describes it as God is love. Now, in the sense that God is love, because he relates it to his person, then his love is as big as he is. Now, we know how big God is. God's a great big God, isn't he? The Bible says he inhabits eternity. He is so big that even time, which is the biggest element that we can comprehend, the biggest measure, time itself cannot fully get its arms around the person of God. He is so big, and so his love is as big as he is. That's amazing. Now, if anything tonight, you ought to go away celebrating the love of God. You ought to say, God is so good to me because he loves us like this. Now, Ephesians talks about this. And if you don't want to turn there, you can hold your place there in 1 John. I'm going to turn over to Ephesians chapter 3. And he reveals, you can turn there if you want, but I'm going to go fast. But Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16 through, well, a couple of these verses, he reveals something about his love. Now, I want you to understand that this passage is talking about getting victory. He says here that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, uh, to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. All right, so he's talking about finding the power of the Holy Spirit so that you can be strengthened within. You know what the problem of uh, a lot of the uh, re- uh, ministries, not ministries, but works that are out there in the world, like uh, Alcohol Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous, is that they're treating from the outside an inside problem. And the Bible wants to give you strength from the inside to treat an outside problem, and He'll give you complete victory. And this is how He does it, not because you become strong, Or not because you have great determination, but you become strong, my friend, because of the Spirit's working inside of your heart. He wants to give you His Spirit so that you may be strengthened with might by the Spirit in in your inner man. But He says the reason why is that you ought to be strengthened and grow is that that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. That ye being rooted and grounded in love. And so the grounding of our faith is connected to the love that God has for you. Why? Because it's his biggest thing. It's the greatest news to all humanity is that God loves us. And he says here that he may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and height and depth. I'm sorry, I messed that up. And and length and depth and height. And to know the love of Christ. So what's got to take place in the heart of a person is that the Spirit must dwell in your hearts to strengthen you. Why? So that you might be rooted and grounded in love. Why? So that you might be able to comprehend what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ. Which he says here, passes knowledge that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. You see, the Christianity that we have, being that it is the real Christianity, is not a list of things you are not allowed to do and a list of things and duties that you must perform. See, this Christianity is Christ. It is Him. It is a relationship. 
It is me and the Holy Spirit enjoying life. It is the experiencing the love that He has given to us. And it's beyond knowledge. Even our comprehension will have to grow if we're going to know the love of Christ. Now, some people, they, they, they get saved. And you maybe were saved if you were an adult. You probably had some sinful habits. And you get saved and you grow enough in your Christian life that you might get rid of some of those embarrassing habits. You've stopped your drinking and your smoking and your carousing and partying. And then they come to a place where they level off in their spiritual growth because you finally arrived to the place where you're not embarrassing yourself with all of those other Christians and friends. But that isn't the place where God determines that a Christian ought to stop your growth. You haven't even begun. You're missing the whole point. Is that God wants you to then learn what is the whole point of your Christian faith. And that's the love relationship with God. It says in Romans chapter 5, I'm going to turn over there again to point out something else. It says in chapter 5, the first few verses, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Now, do you remember that you were justified? The justification is the final kind of the bookend of salvation. I mean, the Lord had to die for you. It had to be the propitiation to make an atonement so that you could have redemption and regeneration, which is the new birth, all of these things. And then at the very end, He declares, He kind of puts the book cover on your salvation and says, He's clean. And God determines to call us clean by the, by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is His holiness, not mine. It is His righteousness imputed to me. And by that declaration, we are made at peace with God. Now that declaration comes not because we've worked for it. It says in chapter 3 of Romans, Therefore by the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. But this justification declares us to be free from sin. And it says in this first verse of chapter 5, Therefore being justified by faith. We received it by faith. What did it give me? It says we have peace with God. Praise God. The whole world is looking for peace, aren't they? I mean, they, they, I mean, you go out there and the world is full of confusion and trouble and problems. But what is it with... And your life will have troubles. Your life will have some problems and trials. But what's inside? You know, it doesn't matter what's on the outside. What's inside? It's something that came not because we are really in... We have a, 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 an ingenuity... Or we're some special person. No, it is a peace within. It doesn't matter what you have and don't have. There's a peace within. It doesn't matter what your problems are. There's a peace within. Have you ever witnessed somebody that was a good Christian and they hear the news from the doctor that they have cancer? I've been with people when they got the news. I have dwell, I've been with people as they go through all the treatments and I, I have seen in both cases, I have seen when people have prayed and God gives them the peace that they are going to find healing. And, and really baffling the doctors, God heals a person and they go on and there are people in our church uh, today that have been healed miraculously of cancer of some one, one sort of another. I mean, and, that's, and we all rejoice in that. I have also seen... Christians who are right with God go through cancer and die. And uh, in both cases, 
I had one fellow that, he, you know, he was one of our ushers, and he, he called me, and he came all the way out here to John Hopkins, and he was going through some special treatments, and he said to me, he said, you know, I, I know that this is, a, this is a real strange thing, but if this is God's time for me to go, I'm at peace. And he did it. Within a couple of weeks, he passed away. I mean, that man went quick. He went from being an usher one Sunday, and about four weeks later, I visited him in hospice, and the day that he died... And I'm going to tell you that in both cases, I've watched the Christian who has peace with God about healing. And in his heart, in her heart, they have great peace. And I've watched the ones that have died with great peace. You see, no matter what our problems or the outcome of our problems, there's something securely fastened within a Christian. And that is peace. And it goes on here, it says, by whom we have access by faith unto his grace. We have access to this justification, opened the door, gave us peace and opened the door to the access of this grace of God. In verse 3, and that not only so, but we glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation worketh patience. Now watch what happens here. You know that the problems that you've had have prepared you to endure problems that are still ahead. And patience experience. You know that. Your experiences are what you draw from. And it says, and experience hope. What you know is that God has brought you through some problems already. And when you face the next problem, your experiences bring hope. Now watch, and hope maketh not ashamed. You're not ashamed. You don't hide. You don't say, well, God has forsaken me. You're in the opposite. You say, no matter what the problem or difficulty is, I've been through some things before, and I know that God delivered me then, and I know that He will yet deliver me. And that's a blessing. You know, the world doesn't have that. But the next words say, why hope is not ashamed? Because the love of God is shed abroad in my heart. It says here, by the Holy Ghost, which is given to us. See, it's, it's a relationship with the Spirit of God. That relationship draws my heart through anything. Now, I don't know if the Lord brought this message tonight to my mind so that you guys would be prepared for a trial. I hope not. I hope I'm not preaching, preempting a trial in your life. But I have learned that life really is a series of uh, troubles and difficulties, trusting in God, and then finding victory. I have seen this, and if, if life can be described in any kind of fashion, it would be that we are not living in a fantasy where we think there will not be any problems, but in the real world, we live in a real world, but we don't live in this world without the power of God. We live knowing the difficulties, facing the difficulties, trusting God, and finding victory. And so you go on from victory on to the next victory, to the next victory. We are Fighters, We are in a battle and we are heading forward to the kingdom of God. We're not really stuck to this world. And we're not stuck to this fantasy that life is ever going to be absolutely perfect with a white picket fence outside and just everything just how it should be. God knows that doesn't build us. He puts in our way a trouble and a problem and those problems build our faith in Christ. Why? Hope maketh not ashamed. The love of God shed abroad here helps me to look back on all of the things He gave me victory before 
And he brings those things to remembrance and says, experience has produced hope. But the whole thing is based on the love of God. This is an amazing love. You know, the option is to join the devil's team. And for us that are saved, we can't retreat, we can't go back to that. But those, there are those who are not saved, and you observe their lives. They serve the devil. Now, the devil says they're serving themselves and their own desires. That's the basis of humanism. But the, the, they're really serving the devil. They're working hard to sin, and they're laboring all of their... What does he pay them? Well, he leaves them empty, destitute. When the problems come, there's no strength. There's no one to run to. There's no one to whom we could cast our cares as preacher preached this morning. He doesn't pay very well. But on the contrast to that, you and I that are saved have a great Savior. We live with the hope of a relationship that day by day we walk with Him and talk with Him and He lifts us, He carries us, He works with us and all based on the fact that somehow, some reason, He loves us. The love of God. The love of God is the main tool toward victory. In Romans 8, the Bible says, it says in verse 36, let's see, in verse 37, Nay, in all things we are more than conquerors through Him that loved us. Now think about that. His love is the basis of victory. He goes on to say, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor and you know this long list, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God. Man, we are privileged people, are we not? You and I do not deserve this. To be loved by God. Now, in our first main text, the Bible said, For the love of Christ constraineth us. I have just three points, and I'll get done as soon as I can. But just listen up to these three points. My first one is, this love is confining. It is confining. It brings my life into obedience to God. It really isn't confining in the sense that it's unpleasant, but really liberating me for God's service. By confining my flesh and my sinful nature, when I love Christ, I simply hate the enemy of Christ. That is my sin. There has to come this place in your Christian growth where you look back upon sin. You look around you, you see sin, and you hate it. You dislike it. And I think some of the, the way we live in, a, in, in, this, in this world, a lot of Christians live kind of a, well, I don't, I don't, what could I do? It, it was there, and I, you know, I, I couldn't avoid the sin. There it was. I couldn't say no. I mean, it seems powerless. It is, it is very seriously connected to the love of Christ. It is confining. And I'm glad that it's confining. It's kind of like this. I love my wife. I demonstrate my love for my wife by fidelity. I prove my love because she is the center of my affection. There's no one else. There never has been and never will be by the grace of God. By the grace of God, I will always maintain that proper relationship. Why? Because a long time ago, now 15 years, 15 and a half years ago, 
I made a commitment to this wonderful woman and she also made the same commitment to me. And to veer from that would make me a scoundrel. Would make me a, 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 a terrible person. It's, it's treachery to break those solemn vows that I made. To look upon, and that's, and that's what he said, I, I, I've been redeemed, I, I am a man of God, why should I look upon another woman? And the same with you, I've been redeemed. We've been confined, then our love, my love for my wife has confined me. But by that confining, it liberates my life. It makes me to enjoy the love that my wife and I share. We share a love because we have promised to each other. Now, you entered into a covenant relationship with Christ. It was not meant to all be one-sided. Well, I got saved. What a great deal. You got saved and now you have heaven. And it is a great deal. But to some, it might look like, well, I got salvation. Now I'm going to heaven. Isn't that a great deal? What did Christ ask from you? My son, give me thine heart. You see, it wasn't meant to be one-sided in your love. It was meant that because He died for you, remember our text at the beginning? And that He died for us, we should not henceforth live for ourselves, but unto Him which died for us. It's this, this doesn't belong to me anymore. I have promised my love to one. I can't run around and flirt with another. I can't let my mind and my heart and my eyes wander around. What would that be? That'd be, that'd be treacherous. I'd be a dirty, rotten scoundrel. The Bible says that adultery in the book of Ecclesiastes is, is a sin that is worse than death. And the Bible says in the book of Matthew that Jesus, his idea was that whoso looketh upon a woman to lust after in his heart hath committed adultery with her already in his mind. And though you haven't committed the sin, if you're a man that has looked upon another woman, you are, you are filthy, you have dirty-minded person. The Lord then brings Christianity not just to outward things, but He brings it down to a heart issue. That He wanted your heart. He wanted you as a husband to look upon your wife and to be completely faithful, not just in the very fact and deed that you haven't been with another, but even in your own heart and mind that you'd be clean and right and that you'd be genuine and that there's no other thoughts for another. And so in so doing, he's setting an example of what kind of relationship he expected from us. It is, his love is confining me. You see, I love Him, and therefore I hate sin. All sin is against Him. The Bible says, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth. So I should hate lying. I should hate it. I should hate it if it's in me. I should hate it if it's in others. I should hate it if it's in my children. I say, I should hate lies. Well, lies are kind of convenient sometimes. You know, telling the truth kind of would take a lot of pride away from us. It's, it's easier to lie. You can just, we, we, people lie to each other. I don't know. Listen, we should hate the sin 
that is against the person of Jesus Christ because he loves me. Now, I've said this before. I haven't said it here, obviously, but, you know, if you break into my house at night with me and my family there, before I call 911, now get this down, I'm going to call 357. Did you get that? Now, now I'll say it again. Before I call 911, I'm going to dial 357. And it can get me six different phone calls. You see, I'm going to shoot you. That's the idea. I'm talking about my 357. Now, here's the deal. The reason is if you endanger my family, you come into my home and endanger my family, you're my enemy. You come in with, an, with a mindset that you're going to cause harm to my family. I'm going to defend my family. I say, well, that sounds like a lot of bravado. No, no, it's actually a God-given responsibility to a man to defend his home. I'm going to defend my family. And you know what? In defending my family, I'm going to cause harm to the one who's coming to bring harm to my family. I'm not going to have to wonder about it. I'm not going to have to calculate it. I'm not going to be tempted to give some present or some kind of affection to the one bringing harm to my family. It's a very simple thing. I'm going to put an end to it. Now, how is it that every lie offends the person of God? Well, how about cursing? Oh, I know you don't curse. The Lord, when He saved me, delivered me from that. But, but, but I'm not... I hear cursing, and, uh, and it's a terrible thing. They take the name of the Lord thy God. You know, the Bible said in the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, that God, He said, I will not hold him guiltless who takes the name of the Lord thy God in vain. But we hear it. And we allow it. So I don't allow it. Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. How about unrighteous affection? Lewdness. Lasciviousness. Things that are of this nature. So I'm not, I'm not running around to do... No, please, please. We don't, I, I'm not accusing anybody in here of those things. But many Christians that I know, and unless you're a different class of people that I haven't dealt with, and I don't think people are different anywhere, they, they turn that television on and they see lies, they hear profanity, rock and roll music, and all of this stuff. Even unrighteous affection and we take pleasure in those things how is it that I could love something that is offensive to God so I say again our love that we receive from God brought us into a relationship where we ought to hate the enemy of God so then friends listen when we allow these things into our lives, 
and we take pleasure in these things, what is it saying about our love for God? You see, the love of God is confining. It brings us into a place where we see sin as treachery. That's why if you're in the book of 1 John, if you turn back a couple pages to chapter 2, you'll see where it says, Love not the world, in verse 15. Neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, look what happens. The love of the Father is not in him. Now we can talk about all this love and the joy that it brings to our hearts, but if we're not living within the confines of the love, we are just like an adulterer. We are an adulteress. We are just like somebody who has been unfaithful to our spouses, treating those vows that we made to God as if they're not that important by bringing sin knowingly and uncontestedly into our lives, taking pleasure in the things that offend a God that's supposed to be the object of our love. Hmm. This is the love that's confining. Now, it is our choice. It is a command. Love not. We're told not to love. Love isn't something soupy that you just fall into. The Bible says, set your affections on things above. So apparently in those commands that God knows, our love is under our control and our governing. Jude tells us, uh, keep yourselves in the love of God. Now this is a command for us. We, we have a job to do. We have a responsibility that God has loved us with an overwhelming love that we don't even comprehend all of the greatness of that love. But yet, we are supposed to cultivate our love in response to love Him and hate sin. Because the love of Christ is confining. It is confining. Secondly, the love of God is compelling. Compelling. It is an issue that a Christian sees the vastness of the love of God And it ought to draw our hearts to a great responsibility to His efforts. We should want to serve Him if we love Him. Now, when I was courting my wife, we were dating back in, you know, whatever, 16 years ago. You know, I wasn't really flippant with the first time that I said that I loved her. You know, I told her, you know that, you might remember that special time. I, I knew that I was going to ask her to marry. I'd prayed about this. I knew this was the one God wanted me to marry. But it came to that point where I needed to express my love for the first time to her. I needed to tell her that I loved her. And so we were, you believe, we were chaperoned and we were over her parents' house. And, you know, I finally got up the, you know, you know me, such a romantic person. You don't know me, I'm not. And uh, so I said to my, I finally leaned over and said, dear, I love you. Phew, got that over with. And uh, so I got up and went in the other room and, you know, I went around the other room and got something to drink because I was done, man. That was, whew, that was a lot for me to do. Really relieved. And so then I went over and sat. They had a little fireplace there. I was set, sitting on the hearth and I wondered, where did Debbie go? You know, my wife's Debbie. And uh, I looked over. There she was right there next to me. Okay. Hi. I didn't even see her sit down. So then I got up a little while later, maybe a minute later, and I put my glass on the counter. I think I was finished, went around and sat down in a chair in a sofa. And uh, no, no sooner did I sit down, there she was. Everywhere I went that night, she'd come sit. It was, it was because of my love, she was always right there. I finally told her. I mean, I think I, I had been, I, I'd been dating her for so long. If you'd listen to my wife tell it, you'd hear her say, he wouldn't say it. 
He, he dated me. We dated for over a year and he just wouldn't come out with the words. So when I finally did, everywhere I looked, there she was. You know, when you realize and you realize afresh and anew the love that Christ has for us, where should we be? It, it compels us. It draws us to something. It draws us to what He's interested in. What is Christ interested? For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which is lost. You see, you're not doing the duty of soul winning because you have to. And I mean it. If you can't learn this, I mean, I, I know we should go soul winning, but learn this idea because it's so much different. If you're going because it's something you have to do, you'll do it, but it won't be the same. But if you're going and serving God, and I'm, I'm using soul winning as the primary example of service, all service for God, whether it is your job to vacuum the floors in the church or, or, or to uh, clean the bathroom or whatever it is that your task in service for God, it is supposed to be done because you love Him and He loves you. I mean, it's as if, that, like that illustration, as if God could turn around and somehow there you are again. And He goes a little way, there you are again. And, we, and instead of dreading the cold because it's this time of year, going out to go so winning, you just come and love it because it's a relationship, it's a love relationship that you have with God. I'll tell you what, it would make you happy to vacuum to make God's church the best. It'd make you happy to clean a bathroom and happy to do the duties that you have to do it is a joy. You say, well, some of that seems like such hard work. Don't you love Him? And if you love Him, it's not a task of labor, but it's a labor that is a labor of great love for Jesus Christ. So then I bring it back again. When we are duty-bound, when work and service for God is drudgery, when it's something that we are falling back and saying, man, I just don't feel like this again. What is that saying about our love for Christ? Oh, we see the love of God. He loves us so immensely. But then do I love Him enough that my service is born? I, it, it is, it is a, it, there is something compelling me inside of my heart. If I could be transparent for just a moment. I could be just a little bit, just tell you what's inside of my heart. I had a good job working and serving the Lord. If you were in Sunday school this morning, you saw some of the things that we did. I enjoyed those things. I loved helping in the Christian school. I loved children. I loved working with the bus ministry. I loved my junior... You didn't see the junior church. That was my wife's fourth grade Sunday school you were looking at this morning. And I enjoyed my fifth and sixth grade junior church. I enjoyed the ministries that God had given me and some of them you saw this morning and some of them you didn't see. I loved those things and I didn't have to worry. Every month a paycheck showed up in my box in the office. Everything squared away. I had a nice home and I had some great things there. But there's something stirring inside. I say, well, people go to the mission field because you just don't like living in America anymore. I'm kind of scared. 
Understand, it's not confidence that brings me to this place. And it's not so much that I just got tired of working and serving where I was. I enjoyed it. I'm saying this. What brings a person to give a, make a step in life like this is a compelling upon my heart. He died for me and I love Him. So that when He says go, you can't wait. You can't sit back. How can I do, uh, do anything else but just what God wants me to do? How can I one day look at Jesus Christ in the face knowing that He gave me a great responsibility and turn back? What would I say? When He look up down at His hands and you see the nail prints and He's got a print in His side where they pierced His side and you think, why? I see all the glory of heaven and the way the angels and all the saints are bowing down and crying out, Thou art worthy. And look up in that face, that Savior, and say, I didn't do what He wanted me to do. See, the love of Christ, if I really love Him, it's compelling. So, if you're not doing all that the Holy Spirit wants you to do, did you notice how I said that? He doesn't have us all doing the same job. But if you're not serving as much as the Holy Spirit wants you to, what is that saying about the love of Christ in your heart? Well, I'll tell you, if you can't figure it out, it's that we love our comfort and pleasure more than we love Him. See, love of Christ is confining, and it's also compelling. Oh, and let me give this last point to you. The love of Christ is continuing. And this is almost as a conclusion to the matter. Because I've mentioned some passages. I know I've been all over the Bible today, this evening. But I, I want to say that in every one of these passages that I read that talk about the love of Christ, there is a view of His return. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the first passage I had you read, is that a few verses before this it says... Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. It says the reason that we ought to work for the Lord is because we know He is coming again. In Ephesians, where I read to you about being strengthened with might by His Spirit in the inner man, the last verse of that passage is talking about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 21. And He's going to have glory. It says, be glory in the church throughout all ages, world without end. Amen! Colossians talks about setting your affections on things above because He's coming. In 1 John, if you're still there in 1 John, and I have to turn back there myself, but in 1 John it tells us in that passage that you're at, hopefully you stayed there, verse number uh, 17. Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Because as He is, so are we in the, this world. That we may have boldness. You see, in almost every one of these passages, Jude says the same thing. Uh, in every one of these passages, there's an entrance upon this topic, the love of Christ. And it connects to seeing Jesus one day. Now, again, this is, this is relating to human relationship in some way. Maybe a silly illustration, but... I remember 15 years ago in the summer, 
before we got married, my wife traveled on our college ensemble. And she was still in college. I had just finished college, and she had one more year. And uh, we were planning, we got married. uh, She got home on a Tuesday from that summer trip, and we got married on Friday. That was a lot of travel, a lot of planning afar off. And, uh, but all summer she was gone. All summer, all those months, it seemed like years. It seemed like decades. I hated the ensemble. I mean, I used to write her letters and I'd send them and try to time it to get to the pastor's houses that where she was going to be. I even drove one night, all night long, just so that I could be in a church service where I could be there where they were singing, just so I could say hi. I mean, I did everything that, that I thought I could do, but not, nothing I could do could bring us together. I had to wait till the end of the summer. Hmm. That wait isn't so fun, is it? But we're waiting for someone, aren't we? Someone someone who died for us. And he's going to come. And so as we look upon our day and we see, see the day is coming and the sun rises, and you see that eastern sky, do you think in the morning, Lord, this could be the day that you're coming? And with a longing heart, living today, looking for the coming of Jesus Christ. This is the day. Tomorrow might be the day. You see, it's like what John wrote in the book of Revelation, where he said, even so, come, Lord Jesus. You see, it's continuing. We continue to serve today, because tomorrow we're going to see Jesus. We serve a little. Tomorrow is not the day then. We go to tomorrow, and He doesn't come, and We serve that day because the next day we'll see Jesus. If He gives us another day on this earth, we'll serve another day because the next day we're going to see Jesus. This is the way a Christian ought to labor. Looking, continuing, serving because we're going to see Jesus. Paul's testimony came to that place where he said he had fought a good fight. He's kept the faith. He was looking for the coming of Christ. Really, he knew his life was going to come to an end. That was in 2 Timothy chapter 4. You can read it sometime. But knowing his life was going to come to end, it wasn't a sorrowful thing. He rejoiced. What motivates you? I think there are some tests to wonder if we're really loving God like we should. I think one of them is this, what do you think when you're driving down the road? I do a lot of driving now as a missionary on deputation. I drive and drive and drive and I do different things. But what do you drift your mind, drift off to? I knew one person said they always daydream and spend their life daydreaming. Why would you spend your life daydreaming? I know when I'm dreaming, I don't dream that often. But if I ever do, I'm always the hero of my own dreams. (laughs) every dream I dream, I'm rescuing somebody or doing something. I'm always a hero. What a self-centered guy. But I, I, you know, you you, you drive down the road or you're going through your day and you have a moment for your mind to wander. Do you know where a Christian's thoughts ought to wander? Well, you know, to him. And it's a good test on whether or not our hearts are as in love with Him as they ought to be. Remember, we'll never live up to His love. 
We don't deserve His love. You don't deserve it today. We didn't deserve it when we got saved. We didn't deserve it when He died. We could never really out-love God. Our love ought to grow. You ought to love Him more today than you ever have in every, ever, ever, ever in all of your life. And if you aren't, you're sliding back. My friends, there's a lot of, your pastor understands what I mean by this, but there's a lot of serving God in this country that is done out of duty. Why don't you get out of duty? Why don't you start to just love to do your things that you have to do? Serve because you love Him. Here in His love of God perfected, our love should grow and continue to grow until the day we see Christ. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for this, uh, this time we were able to get together and really just study your word and talk about your love for us. Now, Father, I pray that you deal with hearts. I don't know really why or what reason you gave for me to preach this message tonight. And, uh, Lord, you know the struggle that I faced in uh, asking for direction for tonight's message. But for whatever the cause is, Lord, whatever the things that you know that Christians here need to renew their love, to come and make some things clean and right. Lord, to get rid of sin, to just get rid of sin, have a godly perspective about sin, to hate it, to hate it out of love for you. Maybe some Christians, Lord, need to start serving for the right reasons. Maybe some are on the verge of making a good decision for you. Whatever the decision is, maybe, Lord, you've worked on the hearts of some and the reluctance and the simple uh, desires of the, this life have kept them from that commitment. I pray, Lord, they'd see tonight that we, we can't do anything but just what you want us to do. Otherwise, we're treacherous to your love. Lord, thank you for loving us, and I pray, God, that you'd work on hearts in this invitation. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, would you stand with me where you're at? If you can stand, stand with me with your heads bowed and your eyes.